Well, of all the months of the year, I love March. And it's not because of the weather, even though it was 30 yesterday and it's going to be 60 today, right? I mean, here in Southern Indiana, it can be both within like a 12 hour period, wonderful and awful. So it's not because of the weather. The reason I love March is because of college basketball. Man, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I already have a spiritual retreat planned on Thursday, March the 19th. I'll be over at Wings Etc. from about 10.45 Central Standard Time, probably most of the day, where the start of March Madness happens. 64 teams all trying to be the national champion. Now, um, I know why some of you may not be as excited or as informed about this time of the year. It's because you don't cheer for the Kentucky Wildcats. That's why. And probably, probably what that means is your team doesn't consistently make it to the tournament. Or if they do, they make an early exit. And so I can see why you're not as, as excited about this. Um, if you've been paying attention to college basketball this year specifically, you are already aware that it's like been the most exciting season so far. There have been several upsets. I know you're well aware of the one that involved my team and a local university, but there have been more upsets this year than ever. I mean, Duke got beat three times in one week. Praise God, right? Woo! I mean, if Kentucky's my first favorite team, the second is whoever beat Duke. That's my second favorite team, right? Well, you know, it was just two years ago when the University of Maryland, Baltimore County that we had never heard of, the Retrievers, beat the Virginia Cavaliers. It was the first time a 16 seed had ever beat a one seed. And that just goes to show you that any day during any game, anybody can beat anybody. That's what makes it so, so exciting. I don't know if you're ready for this season of the year, but me and my family, we've already decorated. Here's a picture of our front door. Welcome, go cats. That's kind of, kind of how we roll at the Heller House, all right? Now, um, you know, it's really exciting. I love March Madness. I love filling out a bracket. I do it pretty consistently every year. I start at the championship line with my two favorite letters, U and K. And then I work backwards from there, trying to find the easiest path for Kentucky to be in the final game and win. I mean, it is the most wonderful time of the year, right? Last week and week uh, just joined into this volume two called an invitation. And one of the things that we wanted to look at is how God's love compares to all lesser loves in the world around us. And for you and I to take some inventory on the things that draw our affection away from this greatest love. I encourage you to take out a journal last week and to write down the things that might try to steal or rival God's love. Uh, the affections of our heart. I hope you did that. If not, I'd encourage you to do that today or this week. I actually, I'm not sure whose journal this is. It was found on the front pew here in Newburgh, but it did have a list of lesser loves. I thought maybe this, if you recognize it, you can come pick it up. It says, first of all, skinny jeans. Uh, second, suede boots. Third, the North Carolina State Wolfpack. Fourth, cheer wine soda, and fifth, youth lock-ins. I don't know whose journal this is, but I'll just lay it right here in case you want to come pick it up. It might uh... <laughs> go Wolfpack, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh man, well. You know, in the context of the verses that we're gonna look at today, I think what you'll see is John continues this theme that there is a greatest love. In fact, it continues to just prove the fact that Jesus is supreme. 
He's supreme as the Messiah, as he's supreme as God in the flesh. He's supreme as the greatest of all loves. I want you to grab a copy of the Bible and turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going to begin reading today in verse 22. If you have a copy of the Bible yourself or if you want to use the one in the seat back in front of you or on a digital device, join with me. Let's read what John has to say, beginning again in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where they spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put into prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. As Jesus continued his public ministry, many people were starting to come and follow him. We're not real sure how many at this point, but from the verses we just read, it seems to be a growing significant number. And they were coming to Jesus to be, and his disciples to be baptized. And it seems to be that there were more people coming to Jesus and his disciples than to John and his disciples. The author of the gospel, John, he makes a point that there was plenty of water where Jesus and John were baptizing, but that wasn't the growing concern. There seemed to be some questions about this ceremonial Washington, washing from some Jews, but also John the Baptist disciples had a few questions as well. These Jewish religious leaders wanted to understand how John and Jesus' baptism had relationship to ceremonial cleansing. Now, in chapter 2, we saw Jesus change the water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And symbolically what he was doing, he was replacing the water of purification with the wine of justification. What he was saying is that now I am the way that you can be made right with God. That it's through believing in Jesus that you can have life eternal. When Jesus cleanses the temple, he's making a point to show his identity and his mission. No longer does the Spirit of God just resolve or reside in a, in a specific place. But now the glory of God is evident in who Jesus is. And it's also the Holy Spirit living in you and me because we, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in the first part of chapter 3, that people can have life through him. So in this moment, all this change and all this new revelation was, was challenging the way that people did things. And John the Baptist's disciples were a little concerned. They were a little, uh, just had a growing concern about the number of people that were following Jesus. In verse 26, it says the disciples said that everyone was following Jesus. If you're a parent, have you ever heard the word Everyone. Maybe it's your 10-year-old son or daughter, and they come home and say, Mom and Dad, I need a cell phone because everyone in my class has a cell phone. Or maybe you have a teenager, and they say, like, Mom and Dad, I need to go to the dance, or I want to go to this movie, or we've got to go somewhere on spring break because everyone is going somewhere on spring break. I've heard adults say, I don't know that, I know that it's harmful for my health. I know that it's illegal. I know that it doesn't honor God, but everyone seems to be doing it. When I asked Christy for 20 extra dollars this month for my food allowance, I said to her, everyone's going to be at Wings Etc. on Thursday, May, March 19th. I need to be there. 
Can you hear the rivalry of loves in these statements? John's disciples, they were, they were feeling a little nervous. They saw Jesus as competition. And I love what John the Baptist says in response. Look at verse 27 of John 3. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what's given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, John says, and it's now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. I think in these words, John shows that he's clearly confident in his own identity. He's also convinced of Jesus's supremacy. Let's look at these two thoughts for just a moment. John's identity. As consistent from the opening verses of John until now, there's never been any confusion in his mind about his identity and purpose. He's very confident in, God, in who God created him to be and called him to be. We see that in even the first chapter of John. John chapter 1 verse 6. It said this about John the Baptist. He came as a testimony to the light so that through him all men might believe. In verse 8 it says, John was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. John the Baptist's own words are recorded in verse 23 where he says, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the path for the Lord. And in verse 27 he says, he who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. Finally in verse 30 of chapter 1, John says, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now in John chapter 3, verse 27, John the Baptist states that every person has received what they have from God. He's not jealous or even covetous of anyone else, including his younger cousin, Jesus. But he's rather content and appreciative of all that God has given him. He recognizes the source and he chooses to live freely and fully in who God created and called him to be. Are you? Do you know that you've been created in love by God for a purpose? Do you know that every talent, every gift, everything that you have has been given to you from God? If you're intelligent, it's from God. If you're musical, from God. If you're creative, resourceful, caring, from God. If you are good at leading, if you're good at turning a profit, if you can facilitate the work of others, if you're skilled with your hands, it's all from God. If you're dependable, trustworthy, it's all from God. Your health, your possessions, everything that you have, your family, all from God. John knew who he was and he also knew who he wasn't. And he was confident in who God had created him to be. You know, many in our world today are confused about who they are. They're confused professionally, politically, relationally, sexually, even spiritually. I think it all boils down to this, to that where we find love and acceptance often defines us. Where we find acceptance and joy and happiness, that often brings us identity. A young person feels accepted by another person or a group and very quickly they begin to do anything for or with that person or group to be accepted by them. It defines them. A man or woman feels successful at work in their career. They're maybe even compensated for that. And soon they begin to identify or find their identity in their career. 
a married woman feels important when another man other than her husband shows her attention. She begins to question her identity as a wife. A teenage boy doesn't enjoy sports, and so he questions his gender. A young woman does enjoy sports, and so she does the same. Or someone receives affection from a member of the same sex, and quickly they think that that must be their identity, and it's often affirmed by the culture we live in. I want you to know that if you find your identity and purpose in anything else other than the God who loves you, you're settling for a lesser love. And you will not find true identity and purpose in anything other than God. John the Baptist used a common knowledge of the understanding of how a wedding works to explain where he finds his identity and where he finds his joy. He says that the bride belongs to the bridegroom and that the best man's job is just to make sure that everything happens so that the bride and bridegroom can leave and have, uh, be happily joined, happily ever after. And so John says, I know that Jesus is the groom and I'm just the best man. John knew that the prominence of Jesus rising was, was what it, how it was supposed to be. He knew that his joy was now complete because his job was fulfilled. He makes a powerful statement in verse 30 of chapter 3. He says this, he, meaning Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. You might want to write that down in your journal as just a powerful statement about John's identity and role, but also a powerful just perspective on identity for you and me. John the Baptist found his identity and who God created and called him to be. And if you're here today and you're confused about who you are, I want you to know that God loves you, that he does have a plan for your life. I want you to know that we love you and we want to walk alongside you as you come to understand the greatest of all loves. I'd encourage you to recognize that God created you fearfully and wonderfully. He did so with purpose and creativity. Not all of us are the same, but all of us are created in love for a purpose and the greatest purpose the highest calling, the place where you will find the most love is in the dead center of God's will and purpose for your life. And that purpose is the same as John the Baptist, pointing people to Jesus. This is actually the last moment we see John the Baptist in the Gospel of John personally. Jesus will refer to him a couple of extra times. But in this moment, in fact, the footnote says that this all happened before John was put into prison. We don't have the details of John's imprisonment in John, but we actually do in Matthew chapter 14. If you want to flip over there with me, let's hear about these events of John's imprisonment. It's John 14 verse or Matthew 14 verse 1. It says, at that time, actually about the same time we're reading in the book of John, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. His fame was growing. People were getting curious about him. He was becoming popular. And he said to his attendants, this must be John the Baptist that, uh, has, who's risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work within him. For Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John the Baptist had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guest, he ordered that her request be granted. 
and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And then they reported this to Jesus. You see how important identity is and how John lived courageously and fulfilled his purpose even to the point of death. But John realized it was not ever always about him. It always has been and always should be about Jesus. I think that's what the next verses of John chapter 3 speak of. Look at John 3 verse 31. It says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is of the earth it belongs to the earth and speaks from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever does accept it has certified that God is truthful. For the one who, who God sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hand. These verses together just continue to reiterate some of these major themes we've seen already in the book of John. Truths about Jesus that we need to hang on to and hold on to. Some believe that the quotation marks actually end at verse 30. And verses 31 through 36 is really a commentary by the evangelist John speaking to the truths. Not a quotation of John the Baptist. Well, regardless... I think these words are packed with truth that we must believe and hold on to because they show that Jesus is not just the number one seed or the pre predicted favorite, but he actually is the all-time undisputed champion of love. So let's look at what John has to say about Jesus' supremacy. I think he unpacks some truths that we need to write down in our journal to make sure it becomes the bedrock of our faith, the foundation of our faith. And the truth, one, is this. Jesus came from heaven and is above all creation. John says 39 times in his gospel that God sent Jesus. He's the only one who came from above and so therefore he is above all. And what John the Baptist says about himself in verse 27 is actually true about Jesus, that God gave him the role that he has. Later in the gospel of John chapter 17, Jesus says this about himself. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. All authority in heaven and on earth has, belongs to Jesus. He is God and he was sent from God. So therefore, we must recognize his authority and submit to his authority to find our identity and our purpose. When we do, we find true life, eternal life. The second truth is this. Jesus speaks the words of God. What Jesus spoke came from his communion with God the Father. He was the word made flesh, John 1.14 says, We'll begin to look at the words of Jesus more carefully as we go through the rest of the book of John. He starts talking a lot more and John records his words. And as we do, we'll find that his words are not from earth. They're rather from heaven and they possess truth to live by. And while many reject his teaching and revelation about God, those who believe in it and trust in it find life. Later, when Jesus is questioned about his authority and his identity, 
He connects a dot back here to this chapter, chapter three, when he talks about the son of man being lifted up, kind of like the snake on a pole we've heard the last two weeks. Jesus says in John eight, verse 28, Jesus says, when, I, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, just speak what the father has taught me. His words are from God and they can be trusted. And we find identity and life in them. Many uh, copies of the scripture have what's called a red letter edition, which simply means that all the words of Jesus are printed in red instead of black. And uh, maybe you have a copy of the Bible like that. David Crowder is a popular Christian artist and he actually has a song that's called Red Letters. And the song talks about the power of Jesus' words. And he admits that when he was a younger boy, he had a hard time kind of paying attention in church. And so he'd often flip through the hymnal and then flip through the Bible to pass time. And he realized at a young age, there were these different colors of words. Some were black, some were red. And so he nudged his grandma and said, Grandma, why is this? And she explained, the words of Jesus are recorded in red. And then she made this statement. When Jesus is talking to you, pay attention. I think that's good advice to live by, right? I think it's something that we should pay attention to. In fact, I just give you permission. Just ignore anything I'm going to say over the next 10 to 15 minutes. And if you have a red edition Bible, just be looking at the words of Jesus. Because in his words, we find life. We find identity. We find purpose. Eternal life. And I'm excited over the next couple of weeks, especially as we get to John chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. He makes a powerful statement about the power of his words. You have to come back then to hear it, okay? But John uh, gives us more truth. Truth number three. Jesus has been given the Spirit without limit. John, whichever one is speaking in this moment, makes a powerful statement about Jesus when he says God gives the Spirit without limit. Now, he doesn't insert the words to him because that's not in the Greek. But it's obvious from the context of this verse, there's only one person that, that John is speaking about, and that's Jesus. And that's significant because in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon a person. When a person received an assignment from God, they received the Spirit with the measure they needed to perform whatever assignment God had given them. But when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, one of the things he noticed was that the Spirit of God in the form of a dove came down and landed on Jesus and remained on him. And that's significant because it was an indicator that who Jesus is his identity. John chapter 1 verse 33, John the Baptist says this, the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That is a, a prophecy found in Isaiah 11:2, Isaiah 42:1, and Isaiah 61:1. And when Jesus fulfilled that, it meant that you and I can have the exact same gift to be filled with the Spirit. When you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're baptized by immersion. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It helped him fulfill his mission, and it'll help you and I do the same. When people in the New Testament came to faith in Christ, they received the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. And that gave them confidence to find their identity and purpose in Jesus and to fulfill their mission of shining his light everywhere they went. See why it's so important to understand the identity of Jesus? By knowing who Jesus is, we come to understand who we are. 
just like John the Baptist, had confidence in being created in love for a purpose and found complete joy in living that purpose out, so can we. And when we do, we come to experience life to the fullest, this eternal life here and now. And we shine the light so that others can see Jesus in us. Truth number four is this. Jesus is loved by the Father and has had everything placed in his hands. We have a new driver at the Heller house. Our youngest daughter got her driver's license last Friday. And so that means our prayer life has increased dramatically over the past seven to eight days. In fact, if you live here in Newburgh, I'd encourage you to keep watch out for a 1999 Chevy Impala. It's gold color with a little girl behind the wheel with glasses. I just encourage you to join me in prayer, all right? She's a great driver, but one of the things I've encouraged her with is to understand that with driving comes a, a lot of privilege, but a whole lot of responsibility. When you get behind the wheel of that car, regardless what age you are, you assume the responsibility for that vehicle, and that's a lot of responsibility. Well, God entrusted redemptive history into the hands of his only son, Jesus. And he gave him the Holy Spirit so that he would be able to accomplish that mission. F.F. Bruce says this, the son, of, uh, the son is the father's envoy plenipotentiary. Isn't that a big word that you'd like to know what it means? It was to me. So remember, I'm from Kentucky. I need help here, okay? So this is the definition. A plenipotentiary is the perfect spokesman, the revealer, the ambassador with the full powers entrusted to him to carry out his job. And that's exactly how God feels about Jesus. And that's important because you and I have been appointed to the same mission. We have the same Holy Spirit. Our job is to connect people to Jesus, to point them to Jesus. And do you know what hangs in the balance if you and I don't? Well, I think John chapter 3 verse 36 wraps up with that truth. It says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That's the greatest truth that keeps coming up over and over and over as we read through the book of John. The greatest truth is this. Jesus is the only way to have eternal life. And by believing in him and his identity, we find our purpose for living. So as John the Baptist exclaimed, we need to repeat, he must increase and everything else in our life must decrease. You know, last Sunday night, we had our first teaching night here as a church. And we've really been trying to unpack this idea of how to grow in our dependence on God. And Jeremy Locke and, and Jacob Stewart and Lori Rogers, supported by some other staff members, really challenged us with a strong challenge to really use this Lent season between now and Easter to create space in our life so that we can truly live and love like Jesus. And they gave us three things to really consider, three practices. And the first was this, to quiet the noise in our life just by creating some space every day to spend with God. Even if it's just five minutes, let him be the first thing your mind thinks about every day. The second thing is to create Sabbath, to find some time for rest and focus on God, whether that be a few hours a week or a whole day a week. It's a great practice. It's actually what Jesus did. He rested. It's what God did during creation. He rested and so should we. And the third is this, to simplify our lives by purging things that are lesser loves. So that God, who is the greatest love, 
can be front and center in our life. And I hope that you'll join us as we really try to be intentional about making space so that we can live in love like Jesus. When you and I truly experience God's love, it changes us. And it should prompt us to love others in the same way. And so I want you to check out a video that might help you and I do just that. Can you change the world by sponsoring a child? Do you think it's possible that one sponsorship can take an entire family out of extreme poverty? or to change the economic stability and sustainability of an entire community, or to transform a nation. What about the globe? For years, we have been partnering with people just like you to bring hope and empowerment to children, families, and communities struggling in extreme poverty. Let me show you how that works. When you sponsor a child, that child is entered into school and their guardian begins our financial responsibility curriculum where they will learn the value of money, budgeting, long-term goals, and develop wise spending habits. Once the guardian completes the curriculum, your sponsored child's family begins to receive a direct cash transfer through mobile banking that will meet a portion of your sponsored child's monthly needs. Now direct cash transfer is shown to be an effective way to end extreme poverty. By providing small, consistent amounts of financial help, families are able to bridge the gap between the extremes of poverty and dependency. Cash transfer empowers your sponsored child's guardian to make great decisions for their children, plan wisely, and invest for the future. Cash transfer addresses the tangible side of extreme poverty, but it's only part of the picture. Using a holistic approach, we provide psychosocial care to combat the emotional and spiritual effects of extreme poverty through our partners in the field. They host orphan and vulnerable children camps where children are cared for physically, spiritually, and emotionally. They also offer spiritual development, mentoring, counseling, and trauma intervention for the children's families and the community. The monthly sponsorship of a child goes towards the direct cash transfer towards their psychosocial care, and a small portion goes towards the greater mission of New International to proclaim Christ and make disciples globally. Sponsoring a child is a $30 monthly commitment, and 90% of that goes directly toward the improvement of your sponsored child's situation. And here's where the beauty of child sponsorship lies. Because sponsoring one child transforms their life and their families. Now imagine if more children were sponsored. That means there's more trade in the community, leading to a more sustainable income for people like the tailors and the farmers and the local shopkeepers. That also means that there are more children in school. And the more children that are sponsored, the larger the impact. Now, can you imagine if all the children in need were sponsored? Your sponsorship can transform the world. Last weekend, we introduced you to this initiative called Transform a Village by Sponsoring a Child. I love the research proven and revolutionary way that New International, as well as our partner Africa Hope, have found to just make a difference, a tangible difference as an expression of God's love in a place that many of us may never travel to, but who need help, 
who need God's love. And we're encouraging you this week to get informed about how and why this works. Because next weekend, we're going to have an opportunity for all of us to make a commitment to be part of this initiative. Next weekend in our services, actually, uh, Jason Simonson, you just saw, uh, Andrew Bondurant, some others from our congregation are just going to unpack what it would look like for us to participate in this. And you'll have an opportunity to respond, and I hope you will. And so this weekend, as we close the service, we just wanted to create some, some very intentional space for you and I to listen to God. Last week at our teaching night, we practiced listening prayer. And Lori Rogers reminded us that every good relationship is really based on two-way communication. And so many times in our prayers, it's us just blabbing our requests to God. We don't take any time. We don't make any space for God to speak to us. And so today we're going to. Just a few minutes, I'm going to pray. I'm just going to give you some quiet moments to listen to what God might be saying to you about this initiative. Lori made some great observations and good reminders. She said, first of all, remember the voice of God is not a God of condemnation or of guilt. God wants wants, uh, us to hear what he wants for us, not from us. And so as you sit quietly and as you listen, I pray that you'll remember that if God doesn't just speak right here in this moment, then just don't let your mind go to some numb nothingness. But Continue to have anticipation that God will speak to you, whether it's in this moment or over the next couple of days. And so after I pray, I'm just going to ask you to consider this prompt, and this is it. What lesser love would you have me give up, God, in order to make space in my life to help transform a village by sponsoring a child? Let's pray together. God, because you're a God of love and you've revealed yourself to us, I pray that you would speak to each of us right now. That God, you would show us how you want us to participate in this initiative to transform a village by sponsoring a child. God, your love didn't come conveniently. God, your love was not cheap. It wasn't coercive or manipulative, but you chose to shower us with your love through the gift of your son, Jesus. Cost you dearly, God. Because we've been loved that way, we don't want to keep that love to ourselves, God. We want to share it and show it to members of our family who might be struggling, members in our church family who might be going through a hard time. God, we want to love our neighbors because you've placed us in their life. We've been praying for them for a month. God, would you just help us to continue to show them the love that we have found in you? God, maybe we share that kind of love with our coworkers, the people that we've known for years or maybe the newest of the teammates. God, I pray that you would help us to share love with every person you place in our path. God, that's the way we can love right here in our own backyard. But God, also there's people across the world who need to know of your love. 
And that God, they have needs that we can't even probably comprehend, but God, you could use just a little bit that we could give up to make a huge difference in their life. And God, I pray that as we do that, God, that they would come to know this love that would prompt a bunch of people halfway across the world to care about them. That we'd be willing to give up things that we take as luxury or convenience. Or even we'd be willing to make a sacrifice so that others would have, be able to just simply live. God, I pray that you would continue to speak to all of us about how you've blessed us and how we can be a blessing to others. God, that we would respond with the kind of love that there is no rival to. There's only one love that we have found true identity and purpose in, and that's why. That's why, God, we want to share that love with the world. So, God, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, to continue to speak to us, to bring conviction, to bring challenge to our heart, and to to move us to action. We're asking that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.